so it's actually been a while since I've been with you because we had a couple special speakers before then. We've had many emails and text messages. Can we keep the special speakers up? I am keeping those names for reference. I will use you as sermon illustrations later. No, but it's really good to be back, and what a, what a delight to be able to bring you God's Word. Would you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we open up the Bible? If you're visiting with us today, our normal fare is to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We believe that this is the Scripture, God's Word, God breathed, and we honor Him by taking it seriously, taking it at face value. And, uh, you know, we know that there are some things that were intended for Israel, not intended for us in the Old Testament, but we still learn from those things. And so we look forward to this. And I, I love bringing you God's Word, and I love that you love God's Word uh, and, the, and that you take it seriously. And we're all in process of that. None of us have this down. There are some things we don't get that we don't understand, but we still come together to try to learn. And I think... Seeing this more as a learning community would be a, a fair way for us to appraise what we try to do on Sunday morning. I am not a prognosticator. I can't predict the future. And I'm not interested in just giving you my opinion on stuff, but there are times in which maybe a pastoral perspective is needed. Such is one of these times, particularly as I was wrestling with this passage this week. Uh, There is a new player in the sermon writing field, and it's not human. It is chat, GPT, or AI or artificial intelligence that can be trained to spit out information, provide reports, write a college paper, and now, for some pastors, write a sermon with the proper prompts. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Remember that, we will have a test after the sermon, okay? Now, according to the latest data, ChatGPT currently has over 100 million users with an endless number of applications. And the website generates one billion visitors per month. Now, it's not that chat GPT can't be of good use. Of course it can. However, when replacing a human to write a sermon without the human element, without knowledge of the audience, without the real life behind the sermon, where suffering brings humility, compassion, without the heart and soul of the Holy Spirit involvement, what you produce are just cold letters on a page. And it hardly passes as a God-inspired sermon. Now listen. This is my opinion, okay? This is not chapter in verse, but there are times when I think it's called for. There's something that feels sinister about this 
particularly in the application of a sermon. If I had somebody write my wife a love note and then signed my name to it, that would be a tad inauthentic, right? If I had someone write a college paper and passed it off as my own, that would be plagiarism. Chat GPT can fit both of those. But the sinister part is, if I am so lazy that I'm going to have a computer generate the sermon, what do you think are my chances that I can discern a thought or sentence that appeals to the flesh? The New York Post had an article titled this, Chat GPT AI Robots Writing Sermons Causing Hell for Pastors. I mean, if the New York Post can recognize some dangers, maybe it ought to get our attention. Now listen, I am not anti-technology. I have an iPhone, a MacBook, an iPad, and I wear an Apple Watch. And I like it because it has all nine of my grandchildren's on the face of the watch, so I can see that at any time. Do you remember, by the way, Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy? I know I'm only talking to about uh, 10% of our audience here because the movie came out in 1990, all right? But you remember he was using a watch in the movie, talking to it like a phone, and in 1990 we're like, that is so weird, that could never happen, right? <laughs> and now, look at us, right? Crazy. So I, I appreciate the technology, but I think it can become an idol while I'm on a soapbox. I'll take advantage of this. There are some churches that are using the metaverse as a way to produce worship services where you can get baptized only without real water. You can take communion only without real elements. You can be in, quote, community only without human contact, without face-to-face. And you can exit any time you're uncomfortable. Now, again, it's not that there aren't some elements that might be beneficial, but at what cost? The individual is in complete control, wearing your headset, for stuff I just don't want to hassle with, I'm done. I don't have to work out relationships, you know. You know how messy they can be, right? I am in complete control. So there are people having church in what we might call a disembodied unreality. A cyberspace church can be like the 2013 movie Her, where an imaginary relationship with an online persona becomes preferable to the often painful, inconvenient nature of tangible reality. As someone from the movie puts it, you always wanted to have a wife without the challenges of dealing with anything real. Unquote. A line that could describe many who seek this kind of detachment from the body of Christ. 
Is the metaverse to the church what porn is to sex? More fake than real? Another chilling factor is that the metaverse has become a new gateway for predators with children. Now, I'm not equating churches who do metaverse as false teachers, but I'm using the topic of false teachers this morning as a way to warn us that the church is becoming increasingly more devoted to pragmatism or anything that works, anything that gets people in the door. And in the process, we end up giving away the store. We end up sacrificing our core values, right? Chat, GPT, and metaverse, they're not the enemy. But you know what it feels like? It feels like giving a hot 220-volt electric line to a three-year-old to hook up. It's incredibly risky. Soapbox done. We need to think about this. Let's all stand as we look at our passage. Second Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 17. We stand in honor of the word of God. These are waterless springs, these being the false teachers, and mists driven by a storm. From them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And here's a verse I know many of you have pasted on your medicine cabinet. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Wow, it's like, dude, it seems like so much judgment. But it's not. Remember, this is an apostle who wrote this. So, you know, he did have a special line with God. But in addition, it's not written with just this fire-breathing judgmental attitude. It's written as a way to lovingly warn the body of Christ. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to discern that we can take this instruction and use it the way that you intended. For we believe that your word is true. May our hearts be open to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I told you what is risky in technology. Let me tell you something else that's risky. And that was me teaching a Sunday school lesson in the eighth grade. Being asked by my Sunday school teacher to teach one Sunday morning. You see, there was a missing component. You know what it was? I wasn't even a Christian then. 
that is a little bit of an oversight, okay? Now, I became a Christian a year later. While in high school, I was preaching on Sunday nights at my home church along with the pastor's son. We would split a sermon. Now, I'm very thankful for one thing, that none of those messages can be recovered <laughs> because you would not want to hear any of those. I'm sure that those messages had poor exegesis. I'm sure poor delivery. I'm not aware of any aberrant teaching, though it wouldn't surprise me because of how green I was. There might have been teaching that was false, but it would have been not with that intent. It was an accident or just being naive. But someone who inadvertently is in error is a different bird than a false teacher who has the motive, the manner, and the content that misleads. It's false teachers that Peter is addressing in 2 Peter 2, verses 17 through 22. And if we are aware of the motive, the manner, and the content of false teachers, we can more easily recognize them, avoid them, not support them. Now let's face it. Almost all religious folks do not advertise themselves as masters of air. I'm not saying all are in air, but I don't know of any religious person that would say, well, you know, now, I'm going to give you a little false teaching here. You know, nobody says that. They all claim to be truthful, even scientific, compassionate, and biblical. Peter paints characteristics to get a picture of how we can recognize false teachers. Um, and some of the things we've already looked at is that they, they superseded the authority of Scripture with their own experience or human wisdom. They misrepresented Christ by denying the second coming or denying future judgment. They promoted sexual immorality and greediness. And when we look at all of this, we realize that because a person quotes the Bible does not make them a proponent of it. And yet, people say, well, you know, so-and-so, he speaks directly from the Bible. Well, yeah, he may read a verse, but then he's not consistent with the verse, he's not consistent with the context, and he goes against what the Bible teaches. So just because you're reading the Bible doesn't mean you're consistent with it. And because a person says the, the name of Jesus, speaks even glowingly about his love, does not mean they know and follow Jesus. Peter has identified the false teachers, and he has a forecast for them that is not so bright. And I think he's wanting us to encourage the church who is probably overrun with this stuff. So what's he say? There are wa these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Notice Peter does not say, 
we have to agree to disagree. You know, whatever floats your boat. Uh, I'm sure they mean well. No, it doesn't say any of that. He's not talking about those who fall into their web. He's talking about those who by intent are teaching falsely. And the mist conveys a promise of water that is so desperately needed in a dry climate. But the wind sweeps through, drives the hazy mist away, and leaving the land parched. In other words, there is nothing of substance with the false teachers that will provide nourishment. They promised satisfaction for the thirsty, for the needy people, but they left people parched. They give nothing of substance because they have nothing to give. And it's reminiscent of what Jeremiah said of Israel. Listen to this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Frankly, the, if there was a combatant against the church, it's not atheists. Now, while they will combat the church, I don't think it's the chief combatant. It's not those who have a secular worldview. It is religious people who say they're for the Bible, they're for Jesus, and they certainly are not. Those are the worst ones. You may drink repeatedly at the broken cisterns of the world and its religious systems and never find satisfaction, but you take one drink from the living water through faith in Christ, and there you find something that satisfies your soul. I'm not saying it will always make you happy. I'm not saying it will always get you what you want, but it satisfies the soul, which is what I really need. The false teachers could not legitimately make that offer. Then you have this ominous statement that is a consequence of denying the truth of God's revelation and for dis distorting the gospel. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I guess as an apostle, you can make that kind of a statement. And when you're writing a book of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that statement could be legitimate. This would be a reference to the darkness of eternal punishment that includes a thick, fierce, comfortless isolation. And it sure sounds like a future event, and it sounds like eternity. And it's not going to be good. The point is there are going to be consequences for a person when they purposely lead others astray. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. You know, for several years, I was responsible for personnel and training others in sales for a national company. Um, at, least, at least locally. 
Uh, and the company I worked for, at least for a time while I was with them, had a sales approach that was very bold and assertive. And the more I was with them, the more I found it distasteful. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm just saying I didn't like it. It was my own foibles. I mean, besides, we are in the show-me state of Missouri. You don't need people beating you over the head with something, right? So I've developed an aversion of that approach in just about any field, but especially Christianity. Now, I think we've all met salespeople like this, okay? For instance, let's say in real estate. Every home is tagged with the line, you guys are going to love this home. You've never seen it, but they're sure you're going to love it. Or you guys would look great in this home. Again, nothing wrong or immoral about these enthusiastic approaches. It just doesn't float my boat, though. Uh, when we bought our present home, we had a real estate agent who did exactly the opposite. He was honest, so honest that every home we looked at, and we looked at a lot, four or five years, before my wife and I could agree on a home. All right? That's a little bit about our marriage. <laughs> but Jake would tell us everything that was wrong that he could see with the house. Most salespeople don't do that. I also had an auto mechanic that way, is it, and he's no longer doing it. But I would go and say, you know, I think I got this problem. I think I need new brakes. He'd look at me, yeah, you don't need new brakes. You don't need this, Kevin. All right? <laughs> you like that, that you can trust somebody that does that. And that's the way Jake was. I don't ever remember hearing, you guys are going to love this home. He never misled us. He wanted to make sure that we had as much information as possible to make a decision. And when it comes to the gospel, I prefer being more like Jake and not the plastic, chain-smoking, overweight, pushy sales cliche that we've all gotten maybe on some other venue, all right? Nothing wrong with that. I just don't prefer that of the pushy kind. Loud boasts, speaking to an outward bravado that fools people. You know, in relationships, it can be like the kind of dress and talk that lures a person in without having an inner substance. In sales, it's hyperbole on the benefits and nothing about the negatives. And with churches, here it comes. It's always... Promises of healing and success that faith will bring while suffering and failure are covered up like bad sores. When you get at least 2 or 3% of the people that have the victory being the press, that's all you hear, and the other 98% are left out, I call that loud boasting. Our passage says they have an assertive confidence, but it's folly, empty words. And the sad thing is many folks can't tell the difference between a religious huckster 
and a sincere servant of Jesus Christ. There is an enticement or trap, appeals to fleshly desires. Because here's two things you can always count on. People want money. People want sex. Just appeal to those two things. Don't make any, uh, you know, parameter for sex. You'll be fine in terms of the public liking you. Grandiose sophistry, or sophistry is the hook. And filthy lust is the bait. I mean, let's face it. If the false teacher came out today and he said, um, go ahead and enjoy fornication, adultery, homosexuality, transsexuality, because that is what God wants. If they just said it, boldface like that, most people would say, oh, no, I don't think so, at least in the religious crowd. Instead, what they say is, God's word is wrong and antiquated, and all of these prescriptions about, you know, morality, that was for another age, but not for ours. We have evolved. We're a lot smarter today. And then there's claim of total freedom or liberty. You're free to do whatever you want. That's the cornerstone of false teaching. That's the enticement and the bait. And they make it sound like God is behind the fleshly pursuits. See, false teaching says your passions make up your identity or who you are. That is who you are. They're one and the same. Given to the flesh. And those who are especially vulnerable to the false teachers are those, our text says, barely escaping those who live in air. And the idea of escaping the system filled with fleshly desires is one of the results of being redeemed. 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3 says this, of having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So barely escaping, I think, speaks to the newly converted. You had people that had just come to Christ. But they're immature, at least in their faith. They're not yet stable. And these teachers come along with their inflated promises that their old way of life was not really wrong in God's eyes. There's going to be no final judgment. And they entice believers back into the lifestyle in which they were once entrapped. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever becomes, overcomes a person to that he's enslaved. How can teachers who are enslaved to their own passions have anything to say about freedom? And it's like the progressive Christian teachers who deny the Bible and then will say anything to acquiesce to immorality. Or it'd be like the prosperity teachers today talking about contentment. The fact is, when's the last time you ever heard a prosperity teacher talk about contentment? Never! One TV preacher, by the way, told his viewers that if you would give $1,000 in seed money, all of your children and grandchildren would come to the Lord. Wow. 
So they profit off the naive to sell their lies. Again, anyone can quote the Bible, but they do so out of context to justify their crooked ways. The false teachers in Peter's day were slaves to greed, and they lived life without being under the moral authority of God. Their lifestyle contradicted their message. Whether it's a claim of freedom, for giving into sexual lust, or the promise of a miracle or money, false teachers make promises they cannot keep. Now listen, the fact is, is that every pastor, every teacher, the Bible says, shall incur a stricter judgment. While, yes, there are issues, I'm not going to deny it, every pastor has to take it very seriously, that when you teach the Word of God, God takes this seriously. And you just want to be clear and you want to be accurate. That doesn't mean I always get it right. And thankfully, I have elders and I have people in the body of Christ that can say, hey, you know, you said this, but, you know, have you thought about this? It's like, yeah, you know what? That makes more sense. And so there should be humility that accompanies the teaching. I want to get it right, but being human, that doesn't mean you always do. The Apostle Paul wrote about those who infiltrate the church, and listen to what he said. He said, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine uh, the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So there are false teachers who claim to be servants of God, but they sublimate the scripture. And they are servants of sin. And usually, again, it's with money or sex. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now let me just tell you right off the bat, this is a humdinger of a couple verses to try to interpret, okay? Some claim the word they, in verse 20, refers to the newly converted who are saved and fall back into the sin because of the false teachers. So they now experience consequences so dire that they were better off as pagans, at least with the earthly consequences, than they are now as new believers because they're under you know, divine discipline. It's not that the state of being unsaved is better than the state of being saved, but the consequences you're experiencing for this unbelief and sin are worse now because you're under the judgment of God, the the discipline of God. Others say that this has to do with the false teachers who were never converted and were better off not even knowing the truth. Now they're responsible to experience God's judgment 
for rejecting all the truth about Christ, which they now refute. Now listen, you could take either interpretation, and I think you would be okay with the tone of Scripture. And i got to be honest with you, I can't be certain about it, okay, about which interpretation. I've made a choice, but I'm just letting you know ahead of time, it's with a loose grip, <laughs> okay? It seems to me, though, that in order to be consistent, the they that was referred to in verses 17 through 19, that was the false teachers, I see no good reason to switch the subject. That the they refers to false teachers in verses 20 through 22. But listen, one of the problems with this is Peter says they have a knowledge of Christ. They've escaped defilements. And it seems to speak of those who are truly converted. But I think a case could be made that a person can have, you know, the the outward showing of these things. But that's just it. It's outward and there's not been real change. I mean, it's conceivable And it happens all the time that there are those who rise up within the church and rose up in in Peter's day. From within the church, they publicly confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. They even underwent the ordinance of baptism. They took communion. They were viewed as a part of the body of Christ. Yet, they were not a genuine child of God. These false teachers somehow gained access to the church by putting on a good charade. They appear as righteous because they do righteous things, right? I mean, I I had uh, breakfast with, he's a dear friend of mine, he is a Muslim. And grew up in the Middle East, was a student here in Springfield. I met him, we've had him over to the house. I love this man, he's a great guy. And he's a committed Muslim. And he has an an outward sense of of righteousness. And I know it's with good intent. Right? And he has a strict diet that he holds to. So all I'm saying is, there are people who appear righteous because they do righteous things. Some of the last words Paul spoke when he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 was this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So we can't be naive about these things. Peter's not saying the state of being saved is worse than the state of being unconverted. He's saying that there are some that become so confused, so entangled, that their bondage is worse now than it was before. You know, you can know the arguments about sin, but now you're being deceived by them. They've developed a kind of defensiveness against God and the law. And how many people are like that? Just mentioned church, God, a preacher. It's like, you know, they have this 
They have this fierce defensiveness that's worse than before. And the false teachers were familiar with the commandments of God. They were friends with immorality, making confident assertions that revealed that their bondage was worse than it was before. They willingly enter into the world of evil, rejecting the authority of Christ. So they're more hardened, their minds, in their own minds, more boastful, scornful, and in slavery, stronger than before. After they'd considered all the truth that they'd been given, and they've turned their backs on it. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, Paul does not say that it was better for a person to be unconverted than converted. But the false teachers in this case were not converts. They were posers. There's no circumstance under which not knowing Christ as Savior would be better. But in terms of the path of righteousness, just doing stuff, they would have been better off not knowing because now they are responsible for this whole horde of truth that they've been given and they've turned away from it because the holy commandment was delivered to them. They knew what righteousness was. Knowing the truth brings with it a responsibility. When his commandment is rejected, Christ is rejected. And Christ said in the parable in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. So it's like I'm responsible for the truth that I know. A lot of biblical scholars think that there's even levels of hell, of punishment, based upon the amount of truth a person is given. They ultimately reject Christ, just like there are levels in heaven of rewards for people. Each is held accountable to the truth we know. To reject the moral commandments we clearly have been taught requires more severe consequences, speaking of the false teachers. And in that sense, it's worse now for them because they have all this truth than what it was before. We shouldn't be surprised by those who seek to infiltrate the church as an imposter. False teachers can point to an experience, but it was a false experience. Satan is the counterfeiter. We've already seen that Satan has a false gospel in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. He's preaching to false ministers in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 through 15. There are false Christians in the same chapter in verse 26. And in the parable of the tares, the Lord taught that Satan plants counterfeits or children of the wicked one in Matthew 13. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Listen, Jews considered dogs and pigs to be the lowest of all creatures. So Peter chose these animals to describe people who knew the truth and turned away from it. And by the way, I think it would be rather odd that you have an apostle that refers to 
people of God, Christians, as pigs, as dogs. That would be unfamiliar territory. But to use Peter's vivid images, the pig and the dog can have a version of being washed and cleaned on the outside, but the dog is still a dog, and the pig is still a pig. Now, the pig may have looked better. The dog may have even felt better, but neither one has been changed. The false teachers denied their created will to love, to choose God, to choose the moral order, and instead, they resembled more an animal just obeying their urges, their desires, their passions. Listen, I, I look across the church landscape, not just our church, but countrywide, right? There's much to be encouraged about, but there's also a lot of concern, not just in our community, but elsewhere, because false teachers proliferate. And Christians are easily beguiled. And they're taken in by the stage show. Maybe it's because I'm older. I don't know. I just am not attracted by that anymore. And I know a lot of Christians are. I'm not trying to give judgments. But to me, the way, the way I look at it, when you have the, the stage show on the stage, it's like a woman who dresses provocatively. When you've, when you've got it, you don't need to do all that, right? <laughs> You're, who you are is who you are, and that's, that should be attractive. And churches and me are, are, to me are kind of the same way. It's like I, I don't need a Branson show on the stage. We want to worship God. We want to hear God's truth. And just let that, because what happens is once I cross that line and it's so much stuff going on the stage, what is it that people are really attracted to? Is it, is it the word of God? Or is it just have an experience? Is it to, tru is it to truth? Is it to be a disciple, a, a follower of Christ? Or is it, man, that guitar player had a great lick. Awesome. Okay? Again, it's not a moral judgment. It's just a guy saying, we as a church want to be able to attract faithful disciples and equip faithful disciples. But as I look at the stage, or the state of the church, I think a person can get discouraged. And as you look at the false teachers, it, it, it's easy to get discouraged because you, you preach the word of God and then you see people going for the trinkets. That can be discouraging. But this is what I see in this passage. Peter's saying, I know. I see it too. God sees it too. And this is what you need to rest on. They'll have to answer for that. God will hold each of us responsible for the truth that we've been given. All right? I think it's important for us to have a gracious spirit that whenever the gospel is preached, be glad. 
And that's why I have to be very careful when I speak this way. Because I don't want it to sound like we've got the corner on the market, because we don't. And there are a lot of wonderful, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our area, which I thank God for. And I meet with many of their pastors, and I'm so thankful for that. But there are many who aren't. And I think what Peter's saying here is, watch out. Don't support that. False teaching. And again, just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean they're a false teacher. We've said this a hundred times already. Having a little different doctrine here and there with secondary things is not a false teacher. I've already defined what that was in terms of, you know, selling greed and sex, denying future judgment, denying the second coming of Christ, perverting the gospel. Okay, that's, those are big items. So just disagreeing with somebody doesn't make them a false teacher. But having said that, again, Peter is wanting us to be discerning, to be able to recognize that, and then also to know that God will deal with that. And I think if we're going to spend our time doing anything, let's do this. Let's make faithful disciples right here at Christ Community Church, not bother ourselves so much about what anybody else is doing. Let's love God as much as we can, build faithful disciples, preach the word of God, and let's see what God does. I can run with that. Let's pray.